I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. A while ago, I was reading a report about the psychological impacts of climate change and came across the term pre-traumatic stress disorder. It fascinated me. The author of the piece that discussed the idea was Lisa Van Susteren. Lisa is a general and forensic psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., and has been involved in climate change issues for the last 12 years or so. She describes pre-traumatic stress disorder as a before-the-fact version of classic post-traumatic stress disorder. I was intrigued as to what impact living in a state of pre-traumatic stress disorder might have on the human imagination, on its ability to flourish and to imagine the future in positive ways. Are we all, to one degree or another, living in a state of pre-traumatic stress disorder? When we spoke, I started by asking Lisa what the term means to her. Well, you know, uh, here's the thing. I I have called it pre-traumatic stress disorder because it is the sort of offspring of post-traumatic stress disorder. But in fact, when I look at it now and the terminology that I use, disorder, gosh, you know, I'm here thinking to myself, it's not pre-traumatic stress disorder. It's a, a pre-traumatic stress condition that I kind of wonder why everybody else doesn't have. So maybe the disorder is not having a pre-traumatic stress condition, given everything the scientists are telling us, given the how late the hour is, and how grave the consequences, the abnormality now is not having a pre-traumatic stress condition. But the original question is how that came about. Well, frankly, it's because I'm familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder as a treating psychiatrist, especially a forensic psychiatrist. I've been exposed to um, many patients over the years or, uh, or worked with lawyers um, who have clients who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was recognizing that I had some of those same symptoms in anticipation of or envisioning what I've been hearing awaits us on climate. So it was really a diagnosis that I was making of myself. And um, how does how do you think that pre-traumatic stress condition um, manifests itself in the world around us in 2018? How do we see it playing out? I see a, again, I'm not, I'm thinking of it as a condition. And that is, if you think to yourself, boy, that out, if you saw a family having a picnic on railroad tracks, the red and white uh, tablecloth spread out over a makeshift table, and you had a train coming out of the tunnel, Uh, If you were preoccupied with getting them off the tracks, it wouldn't be very surprising. And if you couldn't think of anything but that, that wouldn't be very surprising. And if all of your effort went into doing this to the exclusion of everything else and you were worried about their uh, future and whether or not they were going to be out in time, uh, that would all make sense. And then if you uh, put it in a larger picture, this is what we are hearing about civilization and climate change. We are on the tracks. 
The train is coming. We can hear it. We can see it. And we're wondering if we're going to do what's necessary to save ourselves in time. So do you think that some of the concerted uh, or just the, 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 the climate scepticism, the climate denial that we see is, is also a manifestation of this? Of a, a, well, no, that would be a separate sort of uh, entity. Denial and resistance, well, first of all, i got to tell you that at this point there isn't the slightest shred of a doubt in my mind that everyone on some level now realizes that climate change is a, is upon us and is going and is hurting us. And that's whether people admit it or not, accept it or not, like it or not. I've been in the business long enough to understand that people can know things consciously and they can know things unconsciously. And when I was speaking to someone about this the other day, he was disputing uh, this, saying that, well, if you listen to Scott Pruitt and Trump and all the rest, and I pointed out that people are no longer saying it's a hoax. They're not saying climate change is a hoax, not in this government. The last person who did it was a Senator Inhofe on the Senate floor with a snowball a few years ago. <laughs> what what people are saying now is they're kind of dancing around it. They're saying, well, regulations are bad for business and for jobs, and the U.S. isn't getting a good deal in the Paris climate, of course. They're dancing around the issue. These people know full well what's going on. And for those who have chosen to bury the reality, I always find the same set of reasons or want among them. Uh, uh, it's because they want to have power, preserve their power, and that's, of course, in the case of uh, politicians who are speaking to their base and recognize that if they don't have a certain standing on immigration, guns, and climate, that they're not going to get reelected. So they're essentially putting uh, the, this, the political office ahead of public health. All right, then there are people who make money by suggesting that climate is uh, not a problem or is not as big a problem, we can afford to wait. Or there are people, and I've found this is a, a real interest uh, because it says something about some of the men whom I have encountered who either directly or from afar, who are loath to acknowledge that climate change is a problem. And it's often an issue of feeling emasculated. And I have to say that these are typically men who might have deep down inside, when you flip that hood up, who have some uncertainties about their masculinity. I'm just going to come right out and say this. And the idea that Mother Nature is going to push some damn woman, is going to push me around, or that I'm some kind of a girly man with fears about the weather, it's just not going to happen. And these are typically people who, uh, again, uh, might have some uncertainty about the, what masculinity really is what it, uh, and what it entails. So I'll, I'll put that there. Then there are other reasons. Sometimes people are just so depressed about other things, they just can't take it, so they put it out of their minds. And then there are uh, deeper reasons, and these are very sobering reasons, and uh, they may be dependency issues. Uh, I don't want to deal with this. Let somebody else deal with it. I, um, not my problem, etc. And the four uh, reasons that uh, show that they aren't willing to recognize their contribution and their potential action that can be collective. 
uh, they simply shrug it off. Then there are the sort of existential issues, which are the Pandora's box. Climate change is kind of a metaphor for aging and death. And in our society, our culture, there's not much room to talk about this. And when you bring up climate at a dinner party or climate change or what's going to happen, it, you, you know, it, it lands with a thought, I can shut a dinner party down in seconds or empty a room. <laughs> uh, it's really, for many people, it's sort of like they wouldn't bring up how they think they're going to die or what their funeral should be like. So they unwittingly push it aside and think of it as being adaptive, that this is going to keep them in a good mood. And it, in the short term, it might help them. But, of course, the long term, and this is my last point, and that is the unconscious aggression that uh, is directed at future generations, whether, again, conscious, unconscious, passive, active, boil out, all those qualifiers, it's still the same. It is leaving for our children a future that is uncertain at best. And unless we take action now, or I should say yesterday, some of the consequences are not consistent with stable society, uh, with security, and certainly not consistent with the, um, the, the natural world as we know it, and maybe even life. When we spoke before, you, you, um, you drew a link between um, climate change and the gun control issue at the moment and described both of them, I think, as being a sort of cross-generational form of child abuse? Well, I uh, will endorse that interpretation because the gun issue, inaction on guns, inaction on climate, the question that uh, people, the adults in the room need to ask themselves, why the target on these kids back? Because both guns and climate are issues that are unnerving them to their very core. We saw the March for Life here uh, after the recent shooting in Florida. And we know that the kids are much less likely to deny the reality of climate. And indeed, they're suffering greatly. And what I'm hearing that is just so profoundly disturbing, so unnatural, is that many of them don't want to have children because they're thinking that their contribution to society or to future security health of the planet is to not add another human being to uh, add to our existing carbon footprint. And sure, you can say there are many reasons not to want or to have children, but these are people who at the same time have said that they get excited, women especially, if they think action is uh, forthcoming. This is the Paris Climate Accords. And then they think, yes, I can have babies. And then that mood drops again. And there is a group, Conceivable Future, here in the U.S. that is uh, discussing climate change as a reproductive issue as well. And uh, the uh, some kids are talking about how they hope, oh, and this is just, it just makes me shake my head and put my hands over my eyes, are hoping for a pandemic because they believe that a pandemic will wipe out or at least reduce the numbers uh, in the offending species, i.e. humans. And so nature may have a chance. Uh, 
So these are two issues, and there is a third one that has come up when I was talking with someone in the course of a presentation who remarked about a friend who has a group. This is a fellow who was a, um, a postdoctoral fellow, and I'm not going to give any more information except to say he is at a very fancy university, and they are talking about, and again, here's another issue where it's very, very complex, but about rational suicide. So, you see, these are issues that are very deeply now impregnated in the psyche of young people. And the older ones are just not hearing this, and they need to. How do you think that the that, um, the kind of awareness that comes with this pre-traumatic stress condition affects our imagination and in particular our ability to imagine the future as something possible positive something that we could actually create something good in the future what does living in that state uh, do to our ability to be positively imaginative about the future well it's a real uh, obstacle and the question is that we can't know whether or not it's realistic to think that we will have action in time. We'll have action, all right. The question is, will it come in time? So here's the way to look at it. If it's an obstacle just to optimism and to being in a good mood, well, you know, maybe that's some of the price we have to pay. We certainly don't want it to be uh, to keep us from doing what must be done. But everybody's a little bit different. We all have to have some hope. And without judging the merits of having a condition like this or not, because, frankly, it's not something that you can so much vow to have or not have, what we're interested in doing, and especially as a treating physician over the years, is taking the energy of our fears, of our anger, uh, of the, to sometimes the despair, and turning all that energy into action. Because if we tell ourselves that, and this comes up a lot, people don't want to talk about individual action, it's a mistake. All change begins at home. And yes, it does not substitute for national actions, or global actions. But really, it's our individual action taken collectively that makes the difference. That's why we vote in a democracy in November we show up because it's our duty as citizens who believe in democracy. So that individual action is what we do for each other, and it is the collective involvement of all of us that makes the difference. The question is, will we get there in time? So, so it's it's so the, the antidote to this condition is doing something. Yes, it is. It's empowering action. And always the, the experts on persuasion and one of my uh, favorites and, and certainly is the most one of the most celebrated and is also a good friend is Robert Cialdini. And he has written books on influence and persuasion as new book pre-suasion. And he talks about how we get people to be mobilized. And people need to hear different messages depending upon their backgrounds, the demographic, their age, uh, their jobs, uh, etc. 
But one of the things that is a general rule is that in trying to persuade people to take an action, even if it's just uh, taking action on their health, it's a two-step process. The first step is, here's the problem. Don't sugarcoat it. Tell them so that they can see the urgency and the need to take action. If you don't tell them that it's a problem, and I get into arguments with people sometimes, they want me to just talk about clean water and air and an image of something positive. But where's the urgency if we don't have a problem? So number one, state it with all of the urgency that the situation demands. And then secondly, right away segue, here's what we can do about it. And there's a lot we can do about it, individually, personally, and of course, our collective action. And the efforts of grassroots, uh, as we call them, really drive markets and they persuade politicians to write policies. If we turn out when it's time to support the political process, running for office, supporting people who make climate a priority, these there are a number of places where we can be effective and where we can take the energy of these dark emotions and turn them to action. And so um, for, for people who don't, uh, who aren't able for one reason or another to, to take that step across, how do you think living with that affects their ability? Well, oh, to... but, but, but they are. We can transition to a plant-based diet, uh, not eating meat, which isn't really, it's not good for our health and it's not great for uh, animals either. Transitioning to a plant-based diet, which is, as I say, healthier and cheaper. And some people don't have this opportunity, but most people have a little square, a little patch of land in their, uh, where they live or their community gardens, or you can start one. And just planting vegetables in a community garden or a, a, a getting a city to turn over part of a park for a community vegetable garden or instead of a lawn. We don't really need lawns, which just ask for pesticides and herbicides and all the rest that rinse into our waterways. We can do many things, and there are then the smaller things, and that is in our own homes, watching how we use energy. And a big one is making sure that we use renewable energy, and that's solar and wind. And most of us can ask our energy provider to uh, transition to renewable energy, or we can buy credits so other people can if ours cannot. There are multiple ways. If you've got a car, make sure that it's a hybrid, and, and hybrids have come down in price. We can buy used hybrids. We can take public. There are lots of ways, including talking to other people all the time when <laughs> until we're ushered out, but talking to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, making sure that the message that we make through the establishment of social norms, what we do is sometimes the most profoundly effective means to change behavior. So you did you once run for the Senate or for Congress? I ran for the U.S. Senate in Maryland, and um, to quote Frank Mankiewicz, who is a good friend of Bobby Kennedy, uh, after he lost an election, he said, the people have spoken the, can I say bastards here? <laughs> Just teasing. But it uh, really opened my eyes uh, to the issues, and uh, it initially 
was prompted by, I used to do psychological profiles for the executive branch of the government, and I could see that group think in our own Senate and House that led us to go into uh, Iraq. And uh, it was so painful for me to see. And I began questioning myself if I thought I knew so much. Why wasn't I, how can I help if I just sit in a, a, a room and don't say anything? And so I was beginning to kind of nip at my heels. And then uh, stem cell research was blocked by the George Bush administration. And as a doctor, knowing how many people would be hurt by this, it was the last straw. So I, I got into it, and then very, very quickly, more uh, uh, concerning to me than some of these other things, then Al Gore invited me to join his first uh, training on climate, and then it became a mission. So so this next question is something that you're... I've, I've asked this question of everybody that I've interviewed, and you are actually probably the closest to this... <laughs> possibly ever having been a reality. So the question is, if you had been elected November before last uh, to the highest office in the United States rather than the present incumbent, and you had run on a platform of make America imaginative again, so you had felt that there was an overwhelming need to bring imagination back into education, to really give it focus through university and public life, in political life, and you ran on a platform of Make America Imaginative Again, what might you do in your first 100 days in office? Well, obviously, that's a very interesting question, and it harkens back to what I realized and was talking about social norms, and that is we lead best by example. And I am concerned about democracy all across the planet, and I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. And one of the things that we realize is that people look to government to inspire them and they will look to a government to protect them and there are various ways that we are protected and the way that I see our democracy being the beacon of hope is the first order of business in being persuasive and that is the issue of reciprocity so the first thing that I would do is Every bit of information that I had about how to transition to renewable energy, all of the innovations, all the science we know, everything that we know about drawing down existing carbon dioxide with agricultural techniques, how we could find seeds that are resistant to drought, other kinds of ways, that, multiple ways in which transportation and agriculture and industry can either lower the carbon emissions, uh, lower the emissions, or draw down the current emissions, I would make that a priority to share with everybody. It would have the dual effect of making the world safer and realizing that with the issues of leading by example and this profound influence of reciprocity. In order, in other words, if you take the first step to share something, Others will return the feeling in which you've shared something by working with you. And now more than ever, we need a world that collaborates. Mm. Um, you said before that there was a question that you remembered I'd asked you. Have I asked it to you? <laughs> 
Uh, yes, it was the last question. The last question, okay. So, or, or the one that was the most memorable, because frankly, I, I think now the model that we have is not consistent with a stable society where uh, a um, economics is uh, way ahead of public health. We need a profound realignment, uh, consistent with nature, uh, with how we have evolved, and with public health. And the economic model, which is increasing the gap between the haves and the have-nots, it's frankly in many places polluting the environment, and it is stirring up a certain amount of apathy in people when it comes to vote, our twin problems of uh, campaign finance, uh, buying votes, and gerrymandering, which essentially is candidates choose their district, the districts don't choose their candidate, but you can look into that more, uh, is really the foundation for the danger uh, to democracy that one of my favorite um, uh, political scientist sociologists has written about, and that's Stein Ringen, who was a, a professor emeritus at Oxford. And he pointed out that when these conditions, and he pointed out the UK shared some of them, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, the feeling of corruption, which in our country from money and and everything else, and uh, the apathy of voters, which we have as a result of the first two, he said when Athens went down, it was 2,000 years again before we saw a democracy, a republic. And so I hear what he is saying, and it is deeply unnerving to me, and it tells me that we need to move quickly, and we need to move intelligently. So do you just uh, if you, do you have any last thoughts around the subject of imagination that I haven't asked you the right question uh, for? Any last thoughts on that general subject? Tell me a little bit more about imagination and what it means to you. Well, I guess for me it's the, that definition about imagination being the um, uh, oh god, where is it? Uh, just there's a really good. Um, definition of it that I seem to be using um, which will just take me two seconds to find by Maxine Green who she said uh, imagination is the ability to look at things as if they could be otherwise and my sort of the kind of hypothesis of what I'm talking about is that we are seeing so there's some really interesting research done a few years ago which gathered together uh, like 70, 60 or 70 years worth of data from the US of something called the Torrance Test for Creative Thinking, uh, which had been done in big data sets going back to the early 60s, and whose conclusion was that imagination and IQ rose together until 1990, and then they separated. IQ kept rising and imagination went into what oh, she called, a, she called okay. a steady and persistent decline. So what mm -hmm. I've been looking at is Yes. Why might well, that be? And actually, and, and, and fundamentally, the thing with climate change is we need to be able to imagine something other than business as usual. And maybe we have a problem that we have so much in our society that is reducing our ability to be imaginative at the very yeah. time when we need to be at our most yes. imaginative. I agree. And one thing I will say is that activists, though, sometimes, uh, and you'll find activists 
on both ends of the spectrum. Some of them, you know, are desperate and sound angry. They're very fearful. And then you have others who might show different emotions. But every activist is at heart an optimist. And though we're foretelling doom, the reason that we are foretelling doom is in an effort to get people awakened so that we are safe. And so there's a fundamental, I would say, optimism in every this, the heart of every activist. It may not always be clear, but that's why we're out there at the barricade or interrupting meetings or putting up solar panels or planting a vegetable garden. This is all about optimism. But here is the issue about the split between IQ and imagination, as you've described it, in my opinion. And it reminds me, I think it was Schopenhauer, but I can't remember which German philosopher, who said, as the uh, twig is bent, so the tree is inclined. And we have gotten to be an increasingly technologic society. And I am gravely fearful in this kind of setting where we are disconnected from each other and where body language and other cues that are subliminal but that activate the unconscious that tell us that we are human rather than a robot and indeed are responsible for empathy and emotional intelligence are needed less in a highly technologic society, especially one where technology is so deeply revered. It gives us the impression that we're masters of the universe. We can sit at a little computer, inch, how many inches by how many inches, and we can cruise the entire planet. This is a message that tells us that we are, uh, I think, more awesome than we actually are. The place to feel awe is in music, in nature, uh, in seeing how we can fit into an altruistic collective action. So that what makes us uniquely human, which is empathy and emotions, is something that continues to be awakened. And I fear in this technologic society that tells us that if we can master technology, we're masters of the universe, that we get further and further away from this. And then the sense of imagination, which obviously is a uniquely human characteristic, does begin to, uh, as you have said, I fear, split off and become less important. And after all, what do we have if we don't have empathy and emotional intelligence? <laughs>